broadcasting live from the Orlando Orange County Convention Center for Hymns 17. It's this Justin. Now, here's your host, Justin Barnes. Thank you very much, Ryan, and thank you to everybody for joining us today. I truly appreciate it. We're going to bring you the, the next 50 minutes or so, an hour, panel on big data in predictive analytics and healthcare. So, obviously, a, a topic on, uh, on the minds of, of a lot of people in healthcare today, uh, certainly um, emerging in every way, uh, I would say. So, starting um, with some introductions to my right, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Justin. Sean? I'm Sean Dolly. I'm the industry leader for health and life science at Cloudera. Excellent. Chris? Hi, I'm Chris Goff. I lead our solution architects for health and life sciences at Intel. And then my partner for this panel, Gus? Gus Vendetto. Gus Vendetto. I am the VP of Content Development at Hims Media. Excellent. Thank you, guys. So, starting a little bit, um, I think we take a little bit of a, of a step back uh, and then set this up for the audience. Where, and some of this is obvious, but where has um, the, and the trends in big data come from? And why are we here today? How do we get here? Start off with you, Chris. Sure. When you think about predictive analytics in healthcare, not just in the US, but worldwide, some of the payment reform initiatives that have happened, so moving from fee-for-service to, you know, whether it's value-based care in the US or maybe more broadly fee-for-value, and tying reimbursement in many cases to quality metrics really paves the way for predictive analytics. So if you can um, improve your quality metrics as a provider, let's say, by predicting which patients are going to be readmitted within the next 30 days to drive down those numbers, it can have real impact not just for patient care but also from a financial perspective. So that's really, I think, one of the big sort of global megatrends that yep. have made predictive analytics a big growth area. John, how would you add to that? Yeah, um, I think that we've seen certainly artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics over the years many years have different platforms underneath it. And it just so happens that today the most prevalent platform that we see and we certainly see emerging is big data. Um, as folks want more accurate prediction, they want more sources of data in that prediction from clinical text to images oh, to video, EHR. We tend to be a very strong platform where big data tends to be a natural fit for uh, helping machine learning be better. Excellent. So uh, what are the trends? Let's talk about the trends you see because we know that there's strong interest in this and in fact if Healthcare IT News is probably the most popular topic that our readers are interested in. And at this show there's a lot of uh, content for analytics and managing big data. So Chris, uh, your perspective on what's coming in the next couple of years. One of the trends we're seeing is um, fusing together different streams of data. So I think a lot of people would, would um, agree that in healthcare, in the industry, data is very siloed. You might have electronic, you might have the health data in an EMR, you might have claims data you know, that the payer sort of owns and manages in some cases. There's a growing amount of consumer data. How can we bring that information into, into one place, into one repository, combine it to enrich uh, the predictive analytics and improve the accuracy of those models? So I think going beyond just data that's stored in EMR, whether it's unstructured or structured, I think is one of the big trends. Yeah, I, we certainly see that. Um, I would say that today, uh, one of the things that's different is we see, in the past, more longitudinal retrospective analysis and some sense of trying to get to the underlying factors that would predict 
readmission or sepsis or clinical condition emerging. Uh, today, we're in a situation because of the power of uh, folks like Intel, the power of compute, the cheapness of storage, that we can actually more in real time say this patient is on a pathway to sepsis. We can't get the nurses there as frequently as we can get the technology there. Um, so it's really happening at the pace of care where maybe it didn't in the past. Nope, that's excellent. So what are some of the, um, this show is a lot about strategy and best practices. So starting with that perspective, what are some of the best practices that you would offer a health system to begin to navigate big data and predictive analytics? I think everybody knows it's important. It's certainly coming, it's upon us now. Um, and it's very important to their long-term business models and certainly as they engage you know, at-risk contracts and value-based care. But what is uh, one of the two or three best practices where they can start? So your thoughts, Chris? Sure, what I'd like to start with is from an organization perspective, really look at the end game, like really right. how you want this to look when it's all said and done. Yep. You know, in some cases, in a lot of cases, it's it's you know, the easy part is getting the data in one place, developing a predictive model, testing that and verifying that it's accurate. But what do you, then what? Right. So it, it's useless until you actually put it into practice. So for that reason, it's critical to get uh, sort of a multidisciplinary team together with representation of the clinical you know, side of the house to say, you know, if we can predict this, you know, one, it would be very valuable to our organization, mm -hmm. and two, we actually know what to do with that information and we can put that into, into clinical practice. So you get it sort of into the maybe cultural barriers or cultural issues with, with really putting predictive analytics into practice. You know, how do you do it? Who does it? How does the workflow change? So for that, for those reasons, you know, the number one thing I would say is make sure that the team is not just IT driven. It includes maybe the chief nursing officer, chief medical information officer, you know, their their reports, um, and really all the teams that, that these kinds of systems would touch and impact if they were put into production. Yep. And so from Quadera, yeah, Sean Quadera's perspective on that? Sure, you know, um, one of the, so, so certainly everything that Chris said, and I know I've gone into places where they've said, how do we start with machine learning and prediction? And I say, well, can you bring a, a, a long-haired sort of visionary physician to the table? Mm -hmm. Because it does have to start with the ends in mind. I do think one of the things, even when they have a cross-functional team that's key, is is there a data scientist in the group? Um, Excellent. And it's, we found that it's not really that hard to find a big data technologist necessarily, right. uh, but finding someone that has maybe a little bit of clinical expertise, someone who has uh, math skills and the coding and has done predictive analytics before. And if you don't have a data scientist or two, and certainly we see this as you know, maybe 60% of the health systems I work with today have one yes. or more data scientists and a number don't, um, that there are wonderful firms out there that have rented data scientists and even other folks that have tools out there. And so there's no real reason not to start uh, these days. Yeah. Um, and But if you understand the culture of how to build things and then you bring the cross-functional team together, it works well. That's fantastic. Uh, another uh, best practice I bring up is related to focus. So I think a lot of times it's easy to sort of boil the ocean or maybe get started without a clear idea of what you want to do with this. If you could find that one starting use case, which limits the scope, is you know all the all the different um, factions sort of agree would be valuable to the organization and execute that one use case. It's a great way to get started and demonstrate the value of some of these capabilities, and then um, you sort of grow the the practice from there with, with inside the, uh, the organization. It's terrific. So, Sean, you, you had mentioned machine learning, and I know now that uh, analytics is being 
deployed throughout a lot of healthcare organizations. They can see the opportunity for machine learning to essentially uh, you know, reduce the, the time it takes to get your uh, intelligence. And it's really about bringing decision-making down to the clinical level. So Cloudera has been involved in that, or you, I think you have some uh, perspective on how machine learning can be advanced? Sure, um, and thanks for asking. We have, uh, because we're a horizontal big data company, we see a lot of different use cases, even within just machine learning. And so while there's a, let's say, a clinical cohort, almost, if you will, of folks who are finishing up or they're pretty mature with EHRs right now and they're more in maintenance mode with their EHRs, certainly innovating, um, we find that half of those folks or two-thirds of those folks may peel off and do clinical data warehouses, if you will, um, ex post facto of their EHR data warehouse where they're integrating billing and financial information and information from downstream partners where it's not in the EHR. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't necessarily call that machine learning and we see other use cases. Um, it's almost as if we're adding machine learning to every other use case. So we have folks who take vitals and other data streaming off the bedside and they don't throw that data away that doesn't make it to the HR. But now what's happening is they say, let's apply machine learning to that. And we have other folks that say, well, I have a medical image repository. Now I can apply deep learning to that. Mm -hmm. um, what about my uh, data that's not structured, like clinical notes or even audio? We have a customer that records audio in the NICU. Um, and whatever the data source is, mm -hmm. you can apply machine learning to and start to do prediction and bring it down. And so I feel lucky that we're in a situation where we can uh, be a part of a wide variety of use cases. And of course, Intel, there needs to be a lot of compute in these kind of things, so they're a good partner in that. So can we dig down into that a little? Because um, you're referring to some examples. Uh, I'm sure the audience would be interested in hearing more about you know, the type of things happening um, with audio. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about ph uh, physician's notes and, and are they going to be um, able to learn? Um, we're in the early stages of this, but what's the next step and how do yeah. people really start to take advantage? Sure, so, um, and Chris, of course, can add to this. Um, probably the most common prediction that we see today is predicting the onset of sepsis. The second most frequent is predicting readmission. Mm. Um, I think the third most predicting, predict, uh, third most common prediction that we see is predicting the onset of some other type of clinical situation. Um, and there's certainly a long tail of things that folks want to do. Um, one of our customers, Dignity Health, has taken a focus of saying, we want to stand up, and Chris talked about staying very focused initially, uh, that we want to stand up one particular prediction at a time, and we want to be very good about continuing to do that. Other folks will say, well, we want to be very good not at standing up at the end of the day eight or ten predictions, we want to do one, but we want it to do around a, a condition, let's say it's shunt failure, that's very important to us, and we think we can only do it well with NLP. So everyone kind of takes a, you know, parsing clinical notes using natural language processing. So everyone kind of takes a little bit of a different thing. And one of the things that I never expected is that we would have such an IoT and sensor-based focus. And not even necessarily wearables, and so we've done work with the Michael J. Fox Foundation courtesy of Intel on that, but really on the bed as the largest medical device or the smartphone. And we have folks outside of proper healthcare, um, you know, pharma will call me and say, uh, the phone is a clinical device in India for kids to predict the onset of schizophrenia. You know, how do you, how do you see that, Sean? And so 
I would never have predicted that sensors are a key piece of machine learning when I have a wonderful clinical setting in inpatient or even ambulatory. Mm-hmm. One of the, I think one of the ways that uh, sensors, whether it's wearables or other kind of sensors, can really um, add to these capabilities over time is you have the ability to monitor person or patient, in some cases 24 by 7, or at least outside the four walls of the hospital versus you know, some of the more you know, traditional uh, measurement devices or sensors that happen inside the hospital. So you really get uh, a much richer you know, set, of, set of data coming in to, to do the predictions and more use now that's Now that's a lot of data. Yeah, you're <laughs> talking about um, taking uh, IoT measurements, you know, Internet of Things uh, devices, bringing in, uh, I don't know, on a regular basis, temperatures, um, uh, all across uh, a hospital. That's a huge amount of data, and so why don't you talk a little bit about the platform that can handle this? Interesting. Um, a lot of a lot of hospitals um, don't even persist the data that would be useful to enable a lot of use cases. Um, so let's say telemetry by the bedside, they might store for uh, you know weeks or days or weeks, but unless it's a academic academic medical center or teaching hospital, you know they wouldn't keep it for for years long term. What the platform basically enables, because it's based on commodity x86 servers, but then the, the Cloudera software, which um, is very cost-effective when it comes to a, a storage standpoint, is really to store all the data um, you know, in case you need it, because you don't know what that next great predictive use case is going to be. You know, it would be a shame if you, uh, if you, if your data scientists or your, your clinicians or this multidisciplinary team comes up with a, with a killer use case, and then you, know, you realize your starting point is, I guess we have to start collecting this data for the next five years and, and revisit this. So really, being able to collect a very diverse, broad set of data that today might be um, you know, deleted after a short period of time in most cases. So let's pick up on that a little bit, just so, an average, so where does Intel leave off, or where does Intel play, and then where does Cloudera pick up? I think that would be good, just a, sure. a visual in a way, or create a, paint a visual for us and for the health systems out there. Thanks. Most people think of Intel as a CPU company, processor company, which, mm-hmm. you know, rightfully so. Um, we actually have a number of you know, core ingredients that are relevant here from processing to storage to compute. Uh, we actually also have tens of thousands of software engineers, software developers, primarily focused on um, optimizing software that exists in the industry to make it run as efficiently and high performance and scalable as possible on our on the underlying hardware, but then also um, really supporting the open source uh, open source community. So I, I would really point to three areas where Intel is relevant um, for a um, predictive analytics uh, project on, on Cloudera's platform. Mm-hmm. You know, one is performance, and so there, for example, um, there's a number of machine learning libraries that are used by the industry, such as uh, MLlib, which is part of Spark and used quite often on Cloudera's platform. So Intel. Uh, optimizes uh, this software. We have a library of, of optimized mathematical functions that we apply, and you can get you know between two and seven x performance improvement. Uh, the second I'd, I point to is our open source commitment. So we're deeply involved with some of the major open source projects that are uh, relevant to this platform, such as Apache uh, Spark and Apache Hadoop, and those um, innovations that we work on with Cloudera, oftentimes hand in hand then get um, uh, absorbed down into, into Cloudera's platforms that it can be um, consumed in an enterprise-friendly way. And then the last one, which might not be obvious to many, is from a security perspective. Yeah. So I don't need, to, don't need to highlight 
the importance of <laughs> security <laughs> in this industry. Right. Um, but one of the barriers when you look in the data center to having a highly secure platform actually ends up being the performance impact to securing a, a very large, in some cases, very large data set. Uh, if you encrypt that, you know, is that going, you know, what kind of performance impact yep. is that going to have? That's right. So, so we've worked with Cloudera to to use encryption accelerators that we built directly into our processors mm. to reduce the impact you would get from encryption down to below one percent. When it, whereas with a software-only solution, you're looking more like twenty or thirty percent performance degradation. Um, wow. you know, there's other security examples, but those are really the three probably top benefits that customers would get by using this platform from an Intel perspective. You know, for us, I would say even the inception of big data was all about three Vs, one of those Vs being volume. It became clear fairly early that Hadoop file, distributed file system or HDFS or Hadoop would be probably the default operating system for the lowest cost per active terabyte or lowest cost per queryable terabyte. Our CTO and co-founder says, you know, not all of your data needs to fly first class. And so oftentimes Cloudera becomes the coach class or even whatever lower than coach class solution for the data. Uh, and that's what enables, along with some of the things Chris was talking about, of being able to hold this data for the first time ever and actually considering it low cost enough to, to store it. Uh, and then Chris mentioned Spark. Um, I was kind of surprised at the onset of Spark. My first exposure to it, we had a customer who said, we're not going to record a neuron or two in a zebrafish brain and what it does over a couple minutes. We're going to videotape every single neuron in That's a cool. zebrafish. Very cool. We're going to do more than 20 of them. And the only way we can manage this scale of data is yep. coding that runs on Spark. And so, um, you know, we're lucky to be in a company that supports Apache Spark and supports Apache Hadoop. And I'm sure there'll be newer technologies that does this as well, that do this as well. Uh, but for the first time ever, we can do real-time devices on a patient. We had one, I had one conversation where they said, you know, we're putting a brain, some brain sensors on um, PTSD and other folks that have traumatic brain injuries in combat and we can only keep those devices on their brains for two hours, and we'd love to keep them on there longer. I said, why do you don't? Why don't you? And they said, well, we don't have Hadoop, we don't have big data, it's far too expensive. And so we still see examples of folks who are letting data go. They know they'd rather not, um, and that's part of the reason that we've been successful with Intel. So you mentioned open source, and Hadoop, of course, is uh, one of the leading database management systems in open source. It, it occurs to me that all of this uh, development going on with hospital systems independently, and you know, there are thousands of hospitals. What's, what's the opportunity for sharing? And you, you're in, in a position to see what other people are doing. Um, are we at just the beginning of this sharing? And, and you can talk about how you know, one hospital system can get the benefit of what others are doing. What, so, a uh, great question. Um, I'd like to point to one. Um, customer that we worked with, with recently called Sharp Healthcare, actually more than a part, more of a partner than a customer. Um, the use case that they um, they really wanted to focus on, we, we sort of narrowed it down to the universe of improving patient safety, was um, making their rapid response team more um, proactive versus reactive. Mm -hmm. You know, the word response, it's, it's yep. reactive. So, you know, this is the team outside a heavily monitored environment like the ICU is called in when something bad happens, like a cardiac arrest outside the ICU. So the objective was to predict which patients monitored by the rapid response team um, would generate a rapid response event within the next 60 minutes 
and um, the predictive, predictive, yeah. predicting, yes. predicting which which of those patients, and, and this of course will enable the the um, the team to focus on on the, those high risk patients. You know, Intel and Cloudera are really horizontal, you know, mm -hmm. technology customer companies. It's the role of you know, my team and Sean's team at our respective companies to make this as relevant as possible for healthcare. So we um, intend to take all the assets related to this solution uh, and uh, put them into open source uh, to, and, and hopefully grow them over time, um, working in partnership with Cloudera to make this, um, to, to really share some best practices across the industry versus, mm -hmm. you know, one-off uh, sort of custom projects right. one by one. Yeah, what's amazing is uh, I think even not too long ago, uh, it was very siloed. As someone who worked also in pharma and with health plans, um, I would go into these segments and they would say, well, that's health, you know, a health system would say, well, that's a health plan data. Or health plans would say, well, that's, well, that's pharma data. And even though HIPAA and I think uh, business associate agreements, some of these things have been painful, they have really set a stage and a platform to allow data sharing. And so when you talk about data sharing across health systems, you know, we have a platform today, and whether it's uh, going through something like Sage and their Synapse data sharing platform, whether it's point-to-point -point collaborations, whether it's being able to share data with large data syndicators and then get secondary use EHR insights back at a population level, I do think the sharing exists. Um, could there be more? Absolutely. Could there be more public-private partnerships? Absolutely. Um, but we are seeing random acts of innovation around data sharing, and we want there to be more of that. Certainly, Chris and I are working on um, how do we open source and make widely available machine learning platforms and protocols that folks who maybe don't have super huge budgets can easily implement. Um, but we need to share more. We now have a platform to do that. Let's go out and do it. Well, and we're seeing the um, EHRs now supporting open APIs, and so that will help. Uh, in your work, have you seen the beginnings of this is taking advantage of these uh, open APIs, all scripts, and Cerner are now uh, supporting this across the board. Uh, and Athena, of course, uh, one of their uh, uh, market uh, innovations was to be completely open with their own APIs. So, thank you. The projects that, that my team has supported so far, I would say, um, have maybe focused more on interoperability within a hospital network. Mm -hmm. So you might have a hospital network that within just that one organization has multiple EMR systems, um, you know, more than 10 data warehouses. Yeah. So there's a, so I would say so far, at least from the, the projects that we've touched, the interoperability focus has been, you know, step one, mm -hmm. addressing that within the within the organization. But, but over time, certainly look forward to additional uh, use cases that, that might cross those boundaries. Yeah, we certainly see the same. Um, there's still a lot of uh, headroom to go. And uh, we've seen really a surprisingly great adoption of the fire portion of HL7. Um, and, the, you know, we're just scratching the surface on smart apps. And so I think there still is a patient-centric and even a system-centric perspective. And for better or worse, when we do see the data sharing, oftentimes it's with the research portion of an academic medical center or across the street at a medical school and... Uh, so, uh, and, and, and that's okay. Let's make clinical care better. Um, but now we have the platform there and we'll see and we're starting to see more sharing across health systems. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I'm thinking to something an earlier guest said, Dr. Michael Hodgkins from uh, the American Medical Association. He, he was here speaking at HIMSS about how EHR workflow still needs improvement. And, you know, you guys, I think, are at really the forefront here with 
analytics and machine learning to bring predictive analytics in, but getting it to the doctor and the nurse and the clinicians at the point of care is still the challenge. So, uh, um, you know, Justin, you you have a perspective on this because you you've worked in all of the yeah, yeah. if you really worked more at that uh, workflow uh, level. And, and how do you see this? Is this yeah. yeah? So it's it's a little near and dear to my heart. Just um, at a company, Greenway Medical, for many years, and enabling their success was paramount to our business plan. And so, really creating the most workflow centric solution and the customizable solution to their um, specialty to their overall workflow to their day, to their needs to, you know, engaging new payment models and, and, um, and just achieving what they needed to achieve under even fee-for-service. So I guess as we continue to, you know, and I personally push very hard on this aspect because I do believe, and I don't say we because I'm no longer a vendor in that aspect, but I do, vendors need to continue to step up. We They need yep. to innovate. This industry deserves it. We as taxpayers pay this bill, but now we know with meaningful use in other aspects, we as taxpayers pay, but also us as consumers of healthcare. Us as the, you know, $5 trillion healthcare industry now. So we as patients, we as consumers deserve to have better interoperability, better use of technology, and more intelligent systems. We need access to um, to exactly a lot of the stuff that we're talking to today with big data, um, have improved outcomes based on an intellect, using precision medicine, um, mm-hmm. um, we deserve all that. We've paid for it, to be honest. So, and, you know, I, my background is more in, in the technology side and been covering technology for 30 years. And in the healthcare field, which I've only in for about five years, I, what I notice is it's much more siloed. Mm-hmm. You, you look at finance, an area where you would do high competition, high rates of competition, all the applications and all the development was shared. And so, uh, because the, the tools are maybe a little more basic. Uh, I guess uh, the monetary system is a little more simple than the human anatomy, but um, it, it seems like there's a culture of proprietariness in, and maybe it comes because of HIPAA and the privacy concerns that uh, this work is often going on in silos. So it, it's kind of encouraging to hear open source being used yes. and platforms like Cloudera um, and in, using Hadoop and, and all that work. I'm just... You know, I think from my perspective, the healthcare IT news and him's perspective, we want to make sure that it gets broadly distributed so that uh, the knowledge is out there and can be shared. And, and it, it, you know, what, what one hospital does can be uh, shared by another, you know, the benefits of those. And um, for, for those who aren't experts with the with the Cloudera platform or, or Hadoop or Big Data, mm-hmm. it really is a, a perfect platform to help break down those silos. Um, the underlying data structure of, of these big data environments is not a relational database, which, which would make it very challenging to right. you know, develop a complex schema to pull in data from all these different repositories. Um, it's, it's a NoSQL data repository, so it makes it much easier to cons- consolidate data from different places in, the, in one location. Um, one thing I would like to extend off of what you said, Justin, sure. uh, um, I think your comments get right back to the barrier I mentioned earlier about you know, it's one thing to develop a POC that, that proves out the predictive model performs well against historical data, but how do you actually put that into um, practice? Yes. Um, that, I could have included that in one of the trends. I, you know, I, th- yeah. I think that also will be a, gro- a growing trend is pr- in, in a clinical environment at the point of care, productionalizing more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to w- share one example I've, I've learned about over the past few days with uh, Montefiore sure, yeah. uh, in New York. Um, they, they are looking at um, acute respiratory failure and they have a Cloudera-based platform that they've developed what they call the semantic data lake on top of that that also uses graph analytics on top of Cloudera. 
and they have a, a developed a predictive model around predicting which patients are likely to get into that condition, yeah. ARF. Yeah. And that now has, after very string, you know, intensive vetting and testing over a long period of time, um, they're, they're actually putting that risk score right into their electronic medical record and putting it in the hands of clinicians and actually changing the way that they approach patients who are at high risk for that condition. It's, it's uh, you know, they, they stay in the hospital longer, they get readmitted more frequently, um, high mortality, and um, um, they're very um, excited about, about yeah, um, when we when we start to tackle that, yeah. that is when the consumer, because we talk about consumers got to engage, we need the consumer engagement, we need the, you start doing that. You start doing that outreach, that in the intelligence inside the system, and then you engage that. You're going to engage that patient significantly. That patient will say they're going to be very impressed. They're going to understand maybe the future truly of what health IT can bring to them, and what the, uh, the you know mobile health apps or whatever it is. But they're going to engage their healthcare at a whole nother level when they realize, wait a second, that system's intelligent. That system can really save my life. That system may have just saved me ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars or bankruptcy, which is the number one cause you know in, in countries healthcare costs for bankruptcy. Those are all those aspects, you know, I think that's that's when you're going to see consumer engagement continue to, to spike up. That's exciting. So what would you add on to that? It's almost like there's a criterion or a high watermark where if there is some analytic that is really ready for prime time and the nurses can engage with it and it can make it into the EHR, then we sort of know that we've won. And I've, at least, and, and maybe, um, yes, we all need to stretch more, but I've felt pretty good about the EHR's uh, willingness to be open on the back end and say, you know, maybe we don't take the whole exome of the patient, but we're going to take some genomic biomarkers. Yep. Uh, and the folks in medical school today, uh, that genomic medicine isn't precision medicine, it's medicine. <laughs> they expect good. that to be there. That's good. Uh, and I think the nurses uh, are absolutely well qualified. And certainly in clinical trials now, we see drugs that say, hey, you, you might be contraindicated to this clinical trial based on the presence of a particular uh, single nucleotide polymorphism or some genomic variant. And so um, I think you are completely spot on that if we can make it to the patient or even just make it into the EHR, if, if we're not there, it's not consumable, we yeah. haven't succeeded yet. Totally agree. You know, uh, going back to something Chris just spoke about the Montefiore uh, work, uh, it's close to my heart because it's my hometown there in, in New York, and I was out there a couple of years ago. They were very early in working with telehealth applications because a lot of their patients, you know, were homebound. They deal with a lot of low income, and so getting them into the doctors and, and basically early detection could make a big difference because they were dealing with a lot of the, the chronic conditions that just require monitoring. And, and so it's good to hear that what you're saying is that they've been making progress with taking all that data, which they were able to collect. I mean, they were saying that was uh, the one thing they knew that their patients had was, was a phone, and so they were using that, and that was allowing them to really reduce a lot of the cost in that system because of the potential here. And, you know, oftentimes for a patient population like that, there's data that might be useful that a hospital system might, might not even think of using, that might not even be under their direct domain or jurisdiction. So um, there's actually a lot of publicly available data sets that mm -hmm. when merged with data from the EMR can improve the accuracy of the predictive model. So in, in a case like that, you know, perhaps socioeconomic data, they're, 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 for example, you know, there's one um, large health system we worked with on a use case of predicting patients at risk for readmissions. 38 hospital readmissions across um, a few uh, key conditions like pneumonia, heart attack, et cetera. By bringing in 
of all places, uh, through uh, Zillow's publicly available API, right. the average cost of real estate for the for, for the patients based on their their zip code of their home address, um, in, and also their marital status. You know, those ended up being two features that were highly predictive of a readmission. That mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of systems would not think to that's even possible. You know, does it sort of even re enter the yeah. realm of of possibility? But it, but it's actually um, you know quite easy to get some of that data. Yeah, we've seen uh, it's just a super change in care coordination because of predictive analytics. So it used to be, I think it may be the same health system Chris referring to, uh, maybe a different one. They said, you know, if we have 80 folks that ha are here for congestive heart failure that are readmit candidates, um, and we have to do care coordination across 80, we're going to think about certain interventions that we can afford to do because of the number of staff we have and the amount of budget we have, and some we won't. If we use predictive analytics, there's 18 of those 80 that we'll actually know are very high risk. And now we have a tiered system. For the other, whatever it is, 62, we have a much lower perspective on care coordination, but for those 18, we're gonna put most of our budget into that. And so yep. we can do different things. We can call them more than once. We can go make sure there's a bus schedule so they can get, you know, we can make a closer referral to the next visit. And so that stratification of intervention, if you will, and sometimes using the GIS and using the hotspotting or spatial autocorrelation or other variables, however you get there, that's what I want is I want a stratified, cost-sensitive, smart level of care coordination um, so the riskiest and most endangered patients are treated uh, with more gusto. Mm -hmm. the, the healthcare industry does not have the resources to, in a high-touch manner, provide a high level of care to every single patient across the population. So that stratification is, yep. is uh, critical. Paramount. Right? Yeah, paramount. Where, where do you point those resources where they're most needed? And the predictive families can certainly assist with that. Yeah. And what's encouraging about what I'm hearing, you know, this is really just a couple of years into where telehealth applications were out there, you're able to do the remote monitoring, and now we're in the phase where all that data is starting to be coherent. It's just starting to be coherent. We have a lot to learn as you, you know, if you identify those high-risk patients, that's the first thing. You get those people under a monitoring system, have the care coordinators call them and so on. But that, you know, that these are only the most obvious um, conditions. And so we've got a lot to learn from that data. So, so I still get back to though, it's such a huge amount of data. And, and how do you guys manage it? Your warehouses, I mean, you're, are you constantly adding uh, these data farms or, or storage getting smaller? Are you gonna be able to? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the trends that we see is increased use of cloud. Uh, and so some folks just say, you know, maybe there are some folks who are better than we are at, uh, at doing this. And certainly the large public cloud, we work with all of those folks as partners um, and we continue to have great partnerships. They continue to innovate. You know, one of the things that we do and we can do to assuage data size and to Justin's point about workflows is we'll have folks come to us and say, we have this workflow. We think the workflow is right, but we want to make it faster. And of course, there's a big data project for that, just like anything else, and one of them is Kafka. Um, and so we have folks with smart apps, or, or they have a workflow, and they say, how do we just make the workflow faster? And, and if it's a lot faster, could we do it right next to the patient, or could we do it in the room? And sometimes, if we get to high levels of care, maybe you don't have to keep the data forever. Um, but yes, as uh, Intel's chips become more sophisticated, as they become faster and more securable, more encrypted, 
what you see is just a continuing decreasing cost and willingness to keep things for a lot longer period of time. And as a result of that, you can actually change interventions and improve outcomes just from holding the data. So it is a lot of data. That being said, um, if you look at 10 million patients or 100 million patients of you know, deep EHR data, and then you look at a customer of ours like the Broad Institute who has 19 petabytes of molecular mm-hmm. data on yeah. patients. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, bigger, bigger data sets have been solved fairly easily. And so, yes, it's big, but the good news is we've had to solve it in even bigger ways mm-hmm. in other industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, and the genomic data is just scratching the surface on what's mm-hmm. going to be a, a needed uh, for storage. So let's dive a little bit, just in our closing time here, um, some, and we covered some of this. We talked about PTSD and others, but what are some of the um, use, specific use cases you've seen for predictive analytics, um, say for researchers, clinicians, um, research geneticists? What are some of the you know, examples of their use cases? Well, so we mentioned the uh, rapid response team use case earlier. I think mm-hmm. Sean talked about some, some uh, classes of use cases. Here in the U.S., the areas of use cases for providers that I think have gotten the most interest are really check a couple boxes. You know, first first and foremost, is this going to have a positive impact on patient care? You know, that's always a box they want to check. But a second one, um, which which maybe gets into the multidisciplinary uh, approach to this, is um, from a financial perspective, what sort of impact can this yeah. use case have in my organization? So if you look at something like um, 30-day hospital readmissions, that ties back directly to the readmission reduction program from CMS. You got it. And, uh, you know, the penalties associated with with provider that performs badly there. In the UK, actually, there is zero reimbursement for for patients that come back, you know, within 30 days. So it's so uh, much more uh, uh, higher impact. Yeah. Uh, the other area, you know, uh, Sean mentioned sepsis. Sepsis, yeah. yeah maybe more broadly, um, infection in the hospital, um, falls in the hospital, burns, yep. a number of other areas sort of fall in the category of hospital-acquired conditions. And that's another program that CMS has where you know, if a hospital does badly against these yep. um, these HA, HACs, yeah. uh, you know, there's financial consequences. So if you can check both those boxes, uh, improving patient care, making a difference, reducing medical errors, and um, uh, impacting the bottom line of the hospital, that's that's where, from a provider perspective, we're seeing the most uh, sort of interest around some of these use cases. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting ones that um, we had one that would happen to be um, sort of duly uh, effective. This was on uh, one of our health systems uh, said, we would like to predict who is going to overdose on opioids. Absolutely huge problem. Now, it just so happened that some of the predictive behaviors uh, around that were things like um, having multiple doctors or going far away from your house to get prescriptions Mm -hmm. or having shopping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Meanwhile, that could be helpful to a health plan. It was also very predictive to who was going to be uh, overdosing, and so that was clinically uh, relevant information. Another one that I absolutely love, my friend Diane Daly at Cook Children's down in Texas has um, you know, publicly shown that she's used big data and a wide variety of data to predict where child abuse is happening and where child fatalities is happening. And actually, three or four states in the union um, are moving down a path to do that. And and now they're saying, well, what are the interventions? You know, what happens if we can actually say, oh, this was a great one. She said, Sean, do you know that um, we probably have, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of public pools in this area? We can use machine learning and predictive analytics. And what we found is we can predict down to about four or five pools. 
Well, if we wanted to actually, we could think differently now. We could put a lifeguard at every single one of those pools. We right. never would have done that if we didn't know which pools our, your kids are drowning at. And so um, this engagement with patients who really don't have a steward or proxy, i.e. The, the children, um, is just a real sort of a gut-wrenching way of saying, you know, we're going to save kids' lives here because we actually know now who, where the violence is going on and where it's going to happen. There, there is a, I mentioned the cultural, you know, potential barrier earlier, but, you know, I think um, a lot of these use cases predict the occurrence of something that, that's likely to happen. I think um, as, as this becomes more mature, as these capabilities become more robust and more well-integrated, uh, a healthcare organizations going to have to figure out how to deal with something that is, is likely to happen in the future, but hasn't happened yet. So if you look at the rapid response use case, you know, it's probably not the best thing if you're if you're a patient, and the hospital sort of wheels up the crash cart and says, you know, don't mind us. You know, <laughs> so so how how as an organization yeah. do you sort of deal with that? You know, those predictions you now coming into the electronic medical record, and um, versus something that's sort of already happened. Well, it's it's just very exciting to see this really happening now. You know, after a few years of laying the groundwork with getting the data, and, and so it feels like there's a real transition. I don't know if it's Moving past the infancy of, of uh, analytics and healthcare, um, maybe we're getting into the toddler stage. <laughs> yeah. It'll be, you know, it's encouraging to see what will happen uh, as we really move toward having you know, the ability to really, you need time for some of this. So some of the, the data that's being collected, it, it's going to take time for the conditions to be monitored. Uh, conditions don't just all happen. The sepsis happens quickly uh, and uh, drownings happen quickly, but... Um, it takes time to see how cancers are growing and, and, and other conditions and, and treatments and to evaluate that. But yeah, going through sepsis and falls and burns and hospital-acquired conditions and, you know, um, you know doctor shopping and child abuse, you see just the, the diversity and how we can affect our health care costs, our quality of life, our, our impact to patient care. I mean, that's pretty fascinating. I had never heard some of those use cases before. I'd never heard them before, so that's pretty that's strong. That's it's excellent. almost like pick a pathology. You know, pick an area of interest. I, it must be a wonderful time to be an entrepreneur and start some new innovation in the healthcare field when the EHR companies are so welcoming, uh, relatively speaking, I think wonderfully. We're out there. There's lower cost to do the startup. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, pick a pathology, do machine learning, change everyone's lives. Um, you know, it is an amazing time, and we do need time for the data to collect. The innovations are happening faster than we can collect the data. You know, we have folks who say, if I can get your circulating tumor DNA, I can predict whether you're going to going to remission. And I have nurses who say, you know, we're ready for the genomic data at the bedside. And so, wow, uh, just so many opportunities to innovate uh, faster than we can collect the data. Mm -hmm. well, it's, good to, it's good those Intel chips are very fast, isn't it, uh, Chris? <laughs> Well, Sean, I'm glad you brought that back around to uh, entrepreneurialism because that's my world, and this, is the, this Justin Radio Show focuses a lot on healthcare policy strategy, but also entrepreneurialism. So I think even my listeners from that perspective, like, wait a second, new ideas and better <laughs> ideas, and this is great. So thank we you. We would that. love to be the big data platform under every new healthcare entrepreneur. Of there course. you go. Of course, I'll help. That's excellent. Thank I appreciate you. that. Thank you. Well, guys, appreciate your time. I know you guys have busy schedules, so um, thank you for joining us on this panel. You guys, um, have, you know, has been fantastic, and I know that uh, our audience learned a lot. So, and I learned a lot personally. I took down a whole page of notes, so this is fantastic. Great, Sean, Thanks, Chris, thank you guys. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. 
And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us today. And please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustIn so you can respond to your comments from the show. In addition, all my content's always posted on my website at JustinBarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week. 